The one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to one another after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, Who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said, You have said so. Verses 47 through 50. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Matthew 27, 3-10. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to them. It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, "And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of on, sorry, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel." And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Well, over the past summer, the elders have been getting together and we've been praying and planning for the future of Trinity Bible Church. And we've been really excited as we've been thinking through what it is that God might have for us. Um, One of the things that has in particular uh, captured our attention is how much God has blessed us and gifted us with spiritual gifts in this body. Uh, We are really startled and struck in all kinds of good ways uh, by you, the folks that God has uh, brought together here at Trinity Bible Church, and the ways that God has made you, and the particular spiritual gifts that God has given you to serve alongside us for the glory of God. And so, uh, as we have been thinking through these things, uh, we also have sensed in our hearts what we would like to believe is a God-induced desire for more. You might be thinking to yourself, well, that sounds like you're being greedy. But I I would like to say this morning that I believe that actually uh, there is within the scriptures and within God's word and his expression of himself an abundant uh, uh, resource of verses 
that compel us to desire and to want more than what we have. And I think that uh, as I look to the scriptures, I see all kinds of examples of this. In fact, that's what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. And so just to give you an example of some of the ways that the Bible says we ought to want more. Some of these uh, examples that we find in the scripture are Ephesians 3.20. Ephesians 3.20, where it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we think or ask according to the power that is at work within us. Or John 15, 2, where every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. And catch this, that it may bear more fruit. And then Philippians 1, 9, where Paul says, it is my prayer that you love, your love may abound more, and anybody want to step out? More with knowledge and all discernment. And then Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And 1 Thessalonians 4.1, we can't leave that out. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that is just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you also do so more and more. Do you see it? The Bible is just full of examples, replete with examples of God actually encouraging us, stirring us up in our hearts to desire more of all kinds of things that He has for us. And so God has placed that desire, I believe, that desire that you have in your heart for more, it has been placed by God Himself. In fact, James Himself tells us, you do not have because you do not ask. Ask for what? For more. So we want to spend this series seeking more of what God has called us to. Now, here's the problem. I believe that all of us actually don't have a problem wanting more. I think we want more of all kinds of things. In fact, we live in a culture that is absolutely saturated with all sorts of isms, right? Like consumerism, materialism. Uh, We have these isms that we have created. And as Christians, I believe that we actually need to be on guard against consumerism or our society's preoccupation with getting more goods, with more stuff, right? We live in a a culture where we just want more. Now, this past week, I've been watching a lot of Olympics. Anybody else out there with me watching some Olympics? Yeah? Okay, some of you, you can confess later. I know you did. I've been watching a lot of swimming. Now, to be honest with you, I don't usually watch swimming on my own. But when it's Olympic time, we watch a lot more swimming and gymnastics than we would ever normally watch. And I've been watching, in particular, uh, Michael Phelps. Now, Michael Phelps, I don't know if you've been watching this guy, but he has absolutely been in beast mode, as he always is when he's swimming. And this guy just won, like, his, what, 28th gold, or 28th gold medal, and I think uh, 13 of those were, like, individual sports. In fact, I was listening to them talk about it. And they said, Michael Phelps has won all of these gold medals, all of this gold. And, and to really compare him and figure out what athlete measures up to what this guy has done, they had to go back to like 143 B.C. You, you catch this? They had to go back like over 2,000 years to find a guy that kind of measures up to Michael Phelps' performance in the Olympics over these past years. Uh, this guy called Leonidas of Rhodes, who I guess won 12, like, their form of gold at the time. And so you're wondering to yourself, like, what in the world motivates a guy like that to get up every morning and strive after more gold? 
Well, he says after, in one of his interviews, after one of his races this year, I was just struck by it. He said, you know, I, I, I ran, uh, swam my first races and I won a few golds and then I just wanted more, right? One, one I, I reflected that I was the best athlete in the world and I wanted to do it all over again because I had this insatiable appetite for more, more gold. And some of us, I believe, are just as driven by the pursuit of this world's gold. We, we also live in a culture that is plagued by materialism. Uh, we are constantly all about being shaped by this desire for more physical things. And we live for physical things, creaturely comforts. Uh, when we think about the way that our culture shapes us and speaks into our lives, it, it says that you need more Stuff You need more physical comfort. In fact, if we listen to the message of this world, the message is all that matters is what is physical, not what is spiritual. And so we are being constantly bombarded with these messages. You need more physical things and all that matters is physical things. And everywhere we go, we are constantly facing images and messages that are telling us this very thing. And our souls say, yes, that's exactly what I want is more. But the problem is, The world has told us that we were made for more of the wrong thing. And so our souls shrivel up and they become small because we are trying to satisfy them with all of the things that God has not made us to be satisfied with. Right? So what is it that we have been made to be satisfied with? What is this desire that we believe that God has put within us for more? What is it supposed to be driving us to? Well, I believe that there are all sorts of things that the Scriptures call us to desire more of. And what I want to do in this series is actually help us to recalibrate our hearts. Okay? We want to recalibrate, redirect our hearts towards the things that we ought to want and that we ought to desire more of and away from those things that this world is trying to distract us from God and the stuff that He has for us with. So those what we're going to be doing over this series. We're going to be taking a fresh look at the scriptures to see what God has for us. And there is a lot that God has for us. So we're going to begin this morning by taking a fresh look at Judas, the original material boy, okay? Uh, He is the guy that originally sought after more stuff. He was the material boy living in a material world way before Madonna ever had her song. And so see, Judas, he betrayed Jesus because he wanted more, but he wanted more of the wrong things. And so our big idea this morning is that you were made for more. You were made for much more, so don't settle for less than Jesus. That's what we're going to be talking about today. You were made for much more, so don't settle for less than Jesus. And we're going to begin uh, by just introducing this guy, Judas Iscariot. If you're not familiar with him, Judas Iscariot. So today, we're going to talk about the reason why people quit naming their kids Judas. Uh, Any Judases in the room or anybody planning on naming their child Judas? I didn't think so. Well, we're going to talk about why that is. See, in the first century, a lot of people named their kid Judas. In fact, that's why when you read Judas, you read Judas Iscariot, is because there were a number of Judases. Even Jesus had a brother named Judas. So sometimes they would add uh, either a name that was like the dad's name, like Simon Barjona, which is just son of Jonah, or they'd add a place that would tell you where this guy is from, which I think is the case with Judas of Iscariot. I think it means Judas, the man from Kerioth. And so he is a, a guy that is being located as um, a guy that is uh, from this region. And the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are interesting because they actually come locked and loaded with a, a description of Judas that's added to that that really builds tension 
all throughout the Gospels anticipating the betrayal that we're reading about this morning. So in Matthew 10.4, in the Gospel that we're going to be in, uh, Matthew introduces Judas Iscariot. When, he, uh, when, when Jesus first calls Judas uh, and calls him to be one of his disciples that will spend three years with him all along the way, uh, he immediately says in Judas, you know, the one who betrayed Jesus. You're like, what do you mean betrayed Jesus? He hasn't done that yet. He's like, yeah, it's happening. It's coming. Just get ready. This guy is not the kind of guy that you ought to trust. And so it's critical to know that in the verses that we're looking at today, that we are actually being prepared for Judas in the verses right before the verses that Jenny began reading today in Matthew 26, verses 14 to 16. In fact, in those verses, uh, we see a really interesting story. And and that interesting story uh, really sets the context for really just how we're supposed to see Judas and who he is. So it's critical to know that uh, those verses uh, really describe the disciples chastising a woman for pouring out an alabaster jar of expensive ointment or a perfumed oil. And she anoints Jesus with this. Now, if you read the other Gospels, John IDs Judas as chastising. He says Judas is the one who chastises uh, a lady. And that lady uh, is later named by Mark as being one of the Marys. And Mark tells us just how valuable that perfume is. We don't see it in Matthew, but, but Mark tells us that it costs 300 denarii. Now, you might be thinking, that, okay, that, that, that sounds like a good bit of money. I don't know what that means, though. Well, last night, just for funds, I, I looked up what the most expensive bottle of perfume is, because I'm not out buying the most expensive bottle of perfume. But, but if we did, uh, Clive Christian number one, that's it. Guys, if you're looking for, like, Valentine's Day, there you go. Clive Christian number one. Claims to be the most expensive perfume on the planet, and you get a bottle for around a thousand bucks. About a thousand bucks. That's expensive perfume, right? According to our standards. Hang with me. Some of you are like shocked right now at the sticker price, right? That's nothing compared to the price of the oil that this woman doused on Jesus. In fact, what we're told is a denarii was a day's wage. She had 300 denarii, which is roughly a year's wage. So if we're thinking about a modern equivalent, that perfume was probably today be worth somewhere around, what, twenty twenty-five thousand dollars $25,000 on the low end, right? A year's salary it, given to, to this woman's perfume that she pours out in one night on Jesus to anoint him. Now, now, now that might explain a little bit why you might be sort of stopping. I mean, Mark Sheard's our associate pastor of administration. Uh, we started pouring out for Jesus today. He'd have questions, right? And that's a lot of money. And, and just to pour it out, I mean, we got questions. And, and all the disciples are like, wait a minute, we could be doing a lot of good here. And of course, Judas is really concerned about others. And he says, what about the poor that this could be used for? And so they, they question this woman. And Jesus turns to Judas and the others and he says, relax. You don't understand. This woman is preparing me to die for the sins of the world. This is nothing. This is no extravagant measure. It is a perfectly sufficient measure for who I am and what I'm about to do. She gets it and you don't. And Judas complains that the money could be used for the poor. But John 12, 6 tells us Judas really had other motives in the poor because he was described as a thief. A man that was driven by a love for money. And this is an important backdrop to help answer a more fundamental question that we need to think about tonight when we think about, or today when we think about Judas. 
Just how much is Judas worth, is Jesus worth to Judas? Just how much? And is, is Judas is evaluating the value of Jesus? What is he worth in his eyes? Well, I think that we get a picture of that in verses 14 to 16. Look, look there with me. Well, we're going to see that, Jesus, that Judas betrayed Jesus to get more. But look there again in your copy of God's Word. We're going to read there again. And you'll notice that, that this verse, it, it begins with this little word, then, which is actually a very important word. It, it tells us that this woman's extravagant gift that we just talked about and Jesus' response were the straw that broke the camel's back that led to Judas doing what he did and betraying Jesus. Now here's how God's Word describes it. He says, then. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, did you catch that? Judas has heard that the chief priests and elders were conspiring against Jesus to make him disappear. And Judas takes the initiative to find them out and ask them, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Now, the the betrayal really comes down to the money, doesn't it? I mean, in in these verses. You may not think that greed or coveting are that big of a deal, but... Judas's unfaithfulness really came down to a desire for more. And in this case, more money. Now, it could have been more of all kinds of things, and it wouldn't really matter, but money is a big thing. It's one of the things that Jesus talks most about us needing to watch out for. And so here, it, it comes down to money. And Jesus wasn't, we've already seen in, in Judas's eyes, worth a year's salary. That was too much. So what's the going price for the Christ? That's the question. 30 pieces of silver. Now this number, it it isn't as random as it may sound. In fact, it actually points back, I believe, to the Old Testament to Zechariah. That prophet who was a co-prophet with Haggai who we've been talking about the past few weeks. And he was an unprecedented or unappreciated prophet uh, that prophesied to Judah and, and yet found that the people did not respond to him well. In fact, they were spiteful. They were money-grubbing. And they, the people that he served, uh, he finally got upset in Zechariah eleven twelve to 13 and he speaks to them. And he says, if it seems right to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. In other words, they, they haven't treated him like he has been working for them hard. And they weighed out 30 shekels of silver to him. And the Lord says, and I believe sarcastically or derisively, cast it into the treasure. The lordly price at which... I was paid off by them. Now I say sarcastic because the the lordly price they paid is what one commentator described as a ridiculously small sum of money. Very small sum. And and we can't really put a a take on like what would this exactly have been? We don't know. Uh, We just know that it was considered to be ridiculously small and certainly small in comparison to the gift that Mary had just given Jesus. So how much more ridiculous does the price of Judas' betrayal look compared with the generosity of Mary's gift? I mean, who'd have thought that Jesus was worth so little in Judas's eyes? And Judas traded Jesus for pocket change. And here's the deal. 
Judas sold Jesus out because he wanted more. He wanted more of the wrong thing, money. He hated Mary's costly gift and then turns and sells Jesus for next to nothing. And that's how little Judas valued Jesus. Now hang with me. Jesus called Judas as one of the twelve disciples who witnessed all of his teaching and all of his miracles over his three years of walking the earth. He saw Jesus feed 5,000 men and women and children with a can of sardines and crackers. He said, let's go, I've got this. He, He saw him heal the lame, cleanse lepers, send legions of demons running for their lives and raise the rankly dead. Not barely, rankly, they smelt of death and he raised them from the dead. Not just that, Matthew 10.1 says he wasn't just part of the audience, he was part of the action. And in chapter 10 verse 1 of Matthew, it says, And Jesus called to him his twelve disciples, and catch this, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction, including Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. And you're thinking to yourself, surely this scripture couldn't be to me or about me or describe me. And yet, none of us had this kind of experience with Jesus like Judas did. And Judas turned from the Christ. Do you see it? Judas sold Jesus out because he wanted more and more of the wrong thing. Now, to be fair, I'm sure there's a mixture of other motives that we could attribute to Judas's betrayal of Jesus. He wanted power. I'm sure he was discouraged, felt Jesus was arrogant in his claims to be the Christ, etc., etc. But... No reason is so clear here as his desire for the money. And and we've seen pastors for centuries draw attention to this. In fact, Chrysostom in the 4th century said, Hearken, that means listen, all ye covetous, ye that have the disease of Judas. Maybe he was out sick for Jesus' sermon on the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew 6.24 where he said, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Maybe he missed that. But, but catch this. I, I open talking about materialism and consumerism in our culture's constant pursuit of more. And here's my question. How easily can these isms become greedism? And does greed lead us to live lives that actually only value material things and not spiritual things? Now hold on tight. Because I think this is important. We might think, of greed as being a small sin and not a big deal for us. And, and we might think to ourselves, uh, just perhaps greed and a desire for material things, maybe I struggle with it, but it's not a spiritual issue, it's just an issue of the eyes. But Luke and John add another spiritual dimension to Judas's betrayal. In fact, in Luke 22.3, Luke adds this to the point. He says, then, when when." Judas decides to betray Jesus. Then Satan entered Judas. Okay? And then at the Lord's Supper, John 13 says, the devil had already put in the heart of Judas these things. Do you see that? Like this is kind of a big deal. Is the reason that, that Judas sold Jesus out because he was demonically possessed. I mean, maybe that's what some people are thinking. Like this is nothing to do with me. Like what does this have to do with me? I don't need an exorcism, I'm good. Like, I'm not doing weird things at night, nobody's scared at me, I'm not like, you know, flying or levitating. Like, this isn't really an issue that I have to deal with. Judas is an evil of a a whole other sort. 
Well, I don't think Luke and John intended to say, hey, you know, if if you're reading this, don't worry about you selling Jesus out. I just put this in to describe something that happened that has nothing to do with you. You're better than that. Judas is a special case of demon possession. I I don't think that's at all what, what he intends here. See, Christian, God intends Judas to invite all of us to take a spiritual inventory of our heart's loves and commitments. That's what Judas means. You need to take an inventory. What do I love? What am I committed to? Paul warns us as Christians in 1 Timothy 6.10 that this is something that Christians must be careful of. In 1 Timothy 6.10, he says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some, hear me, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Do you see that? Some, have, some Christians, maybe some who even remember Jesus in person, have wandered away. Why? Because of the desire for money. Now that means a couple of things. First, Christians, we can struggle with the love of money. It's possible. When you become a Christian, it's not like you are sprinkled with magic fairy dust and no longer do you desire the things of this world. And the second thing is, is that money uh, love, money love is spiritually dangerous for us. So it's not just a material problem, it's something spiritually that we need to be careful of. It means settling for less than what God desires for you. And I'm not talking about less money. Now I'm not saying that God doesn't want you to have more possessions or money or that that's a bad thing. But the things that God wants for us are so much more than the things of this world that are being eaten by moths and that are actually being destroyed by rust. I'm talking less fruit. I mean, can I be honest? Someday, I would love to have a new car. Just putting that out there. I haven't had a new car, I don't think, like ever. And I would love to have a new car. I think that would be the coolest thing. You know what excites me about that? Buttons at work. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I, I desire buttons at work. I want a radio that whenever I push the button, catch this, two things happen, it turns on. And number two, you can see the display. Like, that thrills my soul in ways that it shouldn't, right? Now, here's the thing that, that I want you to know. When I, when I think about getting a new car, it's not that I don't want y'all to have new cars. I don't want y'all going out on the lot and saying like, oh man, some people have nice cars. They obviously are Judas, I'm so glad I'm more like Jesus. I mean, I might be the most person like Jesus, right? Some of you don't have a car and you're like, there, four, I love Jesus most. I win. That's, that's not what we want to do. No, but here's, here's what I've got to deal with in my heart when I start thinking about looking at needing a new car. Like in my own heart, what I start sensing is something that I don't like about myself. I'm not worried about you. I'm worried about me and the way that my heart deals with wanting a new car. And the way that I start dreaming about buttons that work and sound systems that, like, aren't inconsistent in the way that they put out sound. Like, I start thinking about cars that don't have dents and, and you know, where all the lights work and they, I don't have to get them fixed every week. Like, I, I dream about that stuff. And my heart starts, like, sort of getting excited about that in ways that I'm like, my heart should not be that excited about this when I am not passionately excited thoroughly about seeing somebody come to Jesus. Well, I'm not really excited about going home and discipling my kids. Like, there's something just, there's something broken in that moment in me. Do you you see that? 
And so stuff can so subtly just start drawing us away. Stuff's not bad. Stuff's good. God wants us to have good things. Every good gift comes for the the Father. Everything that we have is from God. Good stuff, love it, but good gifts can all become bad gods. And we need to be very careful about the way that our hearts treat and deal with them. That's exactly what I believe God wants for us as we look at Judas, to be reminded of just the danger of the way these things work. The non-Christian, let me just encourage you to come on in close as, as you're thinking about this. You haven't put your faith in Jesus, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you're not sure. But it is the unanimous testimony of the New Testament that spiritual forces can drive your belief that there is no such thing that there is a spiritual world. Did you catch that? The New Testament, it has a, a unanimous a testimony to us that spiritual forces, spiritual forces can drive your belief that there is no such thing as a spiritual world. Spiritual, spiritual forces are the thing that drive you to believe that all that matters is matter. And that's what's the matter with us. In fact, Ephesians 2, 1-3 describes Judas and all of us before God does a work in us through His Spirit saying, you, speaking of all of us, and he's speaking to Christians here, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. Notice there that he says there's a connection here between being dead in your sins and following Satan. So spiritual death isn't not moving. It means that you are following Satan. And the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you see it? God created you to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we all have a sin nature that has so bent us in rebellion against the God who created us for His glory and our good that we don't work right. We work opposite to the way that we were supposed to left to ourselves. So friend, if that's you today and you've not come to Christ... Uh, you, your, your hearts and your desires have been bent and you are led by powers you know not. And the painful irony is that not believing in a spiritual world is a spiritual problem. Satan drives those dead in their sins. So living like only matter matters is spiritually motivated. Don't be deceived. The, the belief that only the physical world exists, it is a spiritual problem, friend. And those who die with the most toys, they, they still die. Are you willing to wager that there aren't greater unseen forces impacting your lack of desire in spiritual things today. And that great desire that you have for material things. Friend, that is a, a difficult, costly bet to make. Pursue Jesus today. He is worth it. Now here's why, here's what's so scary here though. Notice how calm, notice how calm Judas appears when he betrays Jesus. Did you catch that? In verses 47 to 50, Judas kisses Jesus goodbye. Now check this out. Judas kisses Jesus Jesus goodbye in in these verses. There it says, while he, being Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying the one I will kiss is the man seize him and he came up to Jesus at once and said greetings rabbi and he kissed him and Jesus said to him friend do what you came to do 
Then he came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Now here's a picture, and I want you all to hang on tight because this is important. This isn't something that we want to look at, but we need to look at. Here's how badly hatred and greed in Judas' heart twisted his heart up. See, Judas twist a greeting of friendship, a kiss, into a death sign. Do you see that? He could have been more, uh, more illustrative in this section. This is a kiss of death. And so here's the question, how can Judas so calmly hand over his innocent friend Jesus? I mean, I couldn't do that with my worst of enemies. I wouldn't want to think I could. And yet, and yet here you find Judas doing this with Jesus. And his love for Jesus so paled in comparison to his love for money that it really took him no thought or worry or anxiety to just hand him over. Do you see how what you love, you need to be so careful about it, the way that it can make you value the things that you ought to value more or less? This is how people created in God's image can do horrible things. They, they have a love of something other than God more, and that thing becomes God, and those things require all kinds of sacrifices that are scary. Don't underestimate how your heart will respond to Jesus when you coddle affections for this world while listening to Jesus as your rabbi but not your Lord. See, Jesus isn't merely a rabbi, a teacher, a prophet, or a guru. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Savior of our souls. And He's the only way to what our eternity-implanted hearts will be satisfied with. So what are you coddling this morning that's an enemy of the joy that God created you for? I think that's a question we all need to be asking ourselves as we evaluate our hearts. What is it that you are coddling? I mean, could it be that you have turned, from, turned to good things like money or sex, but you've turned them into gods that are ripping your affections away from Jesus? Is that happening with you? What is it? You know, maybe uh, this morning it's just money itself. When it comes to generosity, you refuse and you pass every time. Because you believe that your security, your trust, your confidence, your power is in your money and in your bank account. Or it could be, maybe this morning, that uh, you are nice and calm on the outside, but inside, you really would hand over Jesus and all kinds of other things. I mean, do you push your kids into sports because you're worried about worldly glory rather than God's glory? My kids play sports. Got to be careful about the way that I push them in sports, that I'm not putting them in a situation that actually leads them away from opportunities to crow in Christ. I want to make sure that I'm not saying that, you know what, the best thing in the world you could do for me is that you're like playing football on Sunday morning. No, the best thing in the world that Benjamin, Johnny, and Jack could do for me that could make me exciting and thrill my soul is that they love Jesus and live for Him. Like, that's what I want. Or what about work? I believe God has created us for work. Work is a, a good thing. He's created for God's glory. I love to work. Whatever job that God has given you, God has called you. He doesn't just call pastors. He calls folks to study law. He calls folks to teach. He calls folks to clean. He calls folks to do all sorts of things to the glory of His name spread out all over the planet. Bringing glory to His name through whatever they do. But are you quick to sacrifice spiritual things for financial things when you schedule your job? Does, Does your job always trump spiritual things? Gathering with God's people, praying for others, 
reading God's word? Is your soul languishing, but you keep on getting up and just going to work and not doing anything about it? Do you keep maybe hoping that on Sunday, a silver bullet will make up for a year without repenting of sin or spending time in God's word, praying for God's help and serving God's people? Man, if they made that bullet, I'd buy lots of them. Would you hand Jesus over for a relationship with a man or a woman who didn't love Jesus, but made you feel loved? And that works for married and single folks, doesn't it? So if you're thinking about selling out Jesus this morning, let Judas tell you how that story ends. Sin always promises to provide more joy than what Jesus has to offer before it leaves you destitute and dead in the alleyways of this world. That's the reality of sin. So you need to ask yourself this morning, we all need to ask ourselves afresh, is Jesus really enough for me? Is he enough? You you trust what God has said about who you are and who Jesus is and what you've been made for. Friend, if so, you have been made for God's glory and for enjoying him forever. We don't have to hedge our bets with Jesus. We don't have to build little side games where just in case Jesus is as good as we thought he is, that we're just hedging our bets, right? We can pour ourselves, give ourselves out for all and more of Jesus. But there's a final thing we see here, and that's that Judas sought more than Jesus and lost everything. Did you catch that in verses 3 to 10? An illustration that's good for all of us when it comes to sin and Jesus and what we've been called to. He says in verses 3 to 10, in chapter 27, Then, when Judas his betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned... He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field and the burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom the price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. What a sad final note on the life of Judas. What did Judas sell Jesus out for? Thirty pieces of silver. And immediately after Jesus was condemned... Notice this, what happened. He changed his mind, he confessed, he returned the money, and he went out and he committed suicide. See, Judas wasn't even, he was even less satisfied and more miserable after he got what he wanted. Did you you catch that? He, He wins, and yet he still loses, and that's how sin works. Judas is a vivid illustration of the end of every soul who lives for more of this world instead of more of Jesus and more of his people. Now, not living for Jesus, friends, it is what we call soul suicide. Now, the question, though, I think in this text is just how much did this cost Judas? That's a question a lot of people ask. What happened to Judas? Did Judas make it into heaven? Did he really truly repent here? In fact, I I remember um, reading in J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye a scene between Holden uh, uh, Caulfield and his friend Arthur Childs and they're talking and he asks them if he thought uh, Judas went to hell after committing suicide for betraying Jesus 
Good question. And Child said, certainly. But Caulfield responds, I bet a thousand bucks Jesus never sent old Judas to hell. I still would, too, if I had a thousand bucks. I think any one of the disciples would have sent him to hell and all, but I bet anything Jesus didn't do it. Old Child said, the trouble with me was that I didn't go to church or anything. He was right about that in a way. So did Judas actually repent here? Uh, Was he forgiven like Caulfield expected him to be? Well, I think it's interesting that Matthew doesn't use the typical word for repentance to describe Judas changing his mind here. But Judas does accomplish all three steps of penance that that the medieval scholastics encouraged. They said, you know, you've got to have these three steps of penance. If you do them, you're, you're forgiven. They were contritio, confession, and satisfaction. So you'll notice that he did all three of these. First, he changed his mind, right? And second, he he confessed his sin specifically, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And then third, he, like Zacchaeus, satisfies his debt by returning his ill-gotten gain. So some have said, this is biblical repentance. There's much good here that Judas does, but I think that Judas is actually lacking one thing to the end, the one thing that he actually lacked from the beginning, and that's Jesus himself. Speaking of this, uh, an old scholar writes that Judas came up short of biblical repentance. And he explains, he does almost all of the right things. But he never goes to Jesus, and he never looks to God for help. Instead, he follows worldly ambition to its natural end, death. So let me just ask you this morning, where is your path leading? Is it a worldly path? Are you a Christian that's being influenced by a worldly path? I I don't want to leave you this morning, uh, thinking to yourself, this doesn't have anything to do with you. But also, I don't want to leave you this morning without gospel hope, because there's a lot here. And so here's the hope, if you're thinking, I just want to go under the pew and go home and take a nap, this is sad. I want you to know there's a lot of hope here. In fact, speaking of Judas's betrayal, another old pastor, Augustine, in the 4th century, said of this verse, as he read it, exalt Christian, that means be happy. Praise God. You have gained by this bargain. What what Judas sold and what the leaders bought belongs to you. Now here's what he meant. Jesus knew Judas had betrayed him and Jesus went willingly. He, He could have called down a legion of angels and legions of angels, but he did not. In fact, he says so. He willingly went as an innocent suffering sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. There was no other way. Jesus willingly went. So Paul describes it this way. This is what the more is that we have to look forward to. And what Jesus did when it looked like all was lost and Satan won, Romans 5.15 says, not so. But if the free gift is not like the trespass, being Adam's sin. For if many died through one man's trespass, catch this, much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Do you see it? How much more powerful his death is in saving and in salvation? Judas won, but lost. And Jesus appeared to have lost, but won. And how much did he win? He won much, much more. Jesus left comfort to enter into our broken world for what? Much more for us. And Judas's betrayal shows that even when it seems that Satan wins, it works out to Jesus winning much more. You, friends, brothers and sisters, we were made for much more. And I would like over the rest of this series to talk about the kinds of 
mores that we ought to want and to excite our hearts towards the kinds of things that we should be setting our hearts on, things above rather than things below. So for the rest of the series, we're going to be doing that. We're going to be considering positively what we ought to be living for more of and hopefully recalibrating our hearts all along the way. Let's pray.